Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. But we've never had where both the governor and the mayor were on the same page. And that is the case right now. The mayor has publicly stated her support for independent maps. Uh, so did the governor. And they're doing a little little backpedaling right now. So uh, I think it's really incumbent on the citizens of Chicago and the state, really, uh, to just kind of hold them to their pledge. Hi, everybody. I'm Fran Spielman. My guest this week is the alderman of Chicago's very bizarrely shaped second ward, Brian Hopkins. Brian, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Frank. Glad to be here. You represent a ward that includes neighborhoods spanning from Streeterville and the Gold Coast to Lincoln Park, Bucktown and Ukrainian Village. The map of your ward literally looks like a a gerrymandered monstrosity, and that's not a personal insult. But with a half a dozen appendages in all directions, it's really exhibit A for why good government groups want to take the remap process away from Alderman and put it in the hands of an independent commission. Where do you stand on that? That's an issue I campaigned on. Uh, When the second ward was first created, everybody noticed what a symbol it would be for political gerrymandering. Um, And as one of the candidates uh, who ran in a crowded field to be the first alderman to represent it, uh, I can honestly say that was one issue that every candidate in that crowded field agreed on. Um, We all kind of adopted it uh, as an issue that we were going to really highlight because People understand it. They look at the map and they know without being told that political mischief is the only explanation that would explain for how something like that could happen. So we disagreed on other issues in, in our debates and our, you know, during the campaign. But that was the one thing we were all on the same page. And I took a pledge at that point that I would always support an independent map commission over the traditional backroom political process that results in maps. And I maintain that today. Um, I have an ordinance that is uh, kind of tied up in rules. I'm trying to get support from the mayor's office to move it uh, that would have a hearing to explain to the people of Chicago how an independent map commission works. It works in other jurisdictions. It works in other states. It can work here. Uh, The only reason not to is because those who want to control our destiny uh, are reluctant to let go of the pen. Yeah, the incumbent protection folks, all the senior aldermen, including the mayor's floor leader, Michelle Harris, the rules committee chairman who controls this process. They don't want to give this up and they're not going to. And so these efforts to seat an independent commission look like they're going nowhere, even though Lori Lightfoot agreed with you on the campaign trail and promised that she did and not only the the mayor but the governor as well and that was a point that uh that i made recently was up until now we have never had a situation where both the governor of the state and the mayor of the city were publicly in support of an independent map commission uh there's been times when it was one or the other you know governor quinn i think had said that he was in favor of it Um, But we've never had where both the governor and the mayor 
were on the same page. And that is the case right now. The mayor has publicly stated her support for independent maps. Uh, so did the governor. And they're doing a little little backpedaling right now. So uh, I think it's really incumbent on the citizens of Chicago and the state, really, uh, to just kind of hold them to their pledge. And so there's a possibility if the attention really gets focused on this issue, I think the governor and the mayor will both do the right thing and, and will honor the campaign promise that they made years ago. Meanwhile, how do you, as the alderman of this bizarre ward, juggle so many diverse neighborhoods with such different interests? Yeah, that's a great question. And uh, I won't say it's easy, but I will say it's gotten easier over time. You know, I'm, a, I'm in my second term now. Uh, you know, this ward is no longer new. There was a learning curve in the first couple of years trying to tie it all together. Uh, and frankly, the workload for me as an alderman is a little bit higher uh, just because I've got so many different neighborhood organizations. Most wards, you might have two or three really strong, active neighborhood organizations in your ward. I've got 14 uh, and oh, I, I, wow. I only have little I have little pieces of them. But that doesn't absolve me, you know, of of the workload. I've got to pay equal attention to all of them, you know, even though I may only have like three or four square blocks of, of one area. Uh, you know, the, the neighborhood isn't going to allow that to be an excuse where I'll say, oh, well, you know, I'll I'll get to you guys later. You know, uh, I can't do that. I've got to pay equal attention to all the communities. Um, and so it, it really does increase the workload. But over time, as as uh, my office and my staff, you know, I've got a, a great staff. They've gotten to know the neighborhood leaders, you know, the block club leaders, that sort of thing. So we keep the lines of communication wide open and we try to be as responsive as we can, uh, even though the, you know, the geography is a little bit dispersed there. You know, email and phone calls uh, are the way we keep in touch with everybody. So we, we try to cover our bases that way. You're a two-time president of the Streeterville Organization of Active Residents, SOAR. What did that experience teach you that has helped you be a better and more responsive alderman? Well, it has given me a bias toward neighborhood associations. You know, I, I remember what that was like. And one of the most common criticisms that uh, people would get involved in an issue when, let's say, there was a development proposal or a zoning change on the block and that would fire up people who were never really involved in their community before. So they would come together around that issue and then they would see, hey, wait, there's already a neighborhood association that's involved and they seem to have more credibility than I do or, or their voice seems to be heard uh, in a way that mine isn't. And they would say, why is that? And my answer is, well, because they put in the work, right? They're there every day, every week, every month, there's something going on in your community. And so they're entitled uh, to a little bit more representation. They might get their call returned a little quicker, you know, than anyone else. And I strongly encourage people to not wait for there to be some NIMBY issue that gets you fired up. Uh, seek out your, your neighborhood association and get involved with it. You know, just at least know who they are, at least know what they do, have some familiarity, sign up for their newsletter. You know, um, I really encourage that because uh, it helps keep you informed. It helps bring communities together when we're dealing with things like right now, like an in increase in crime and increase in carjacking. It gives people a chance to engage. And so they feel like they're doing more than just complaining, that they're a part of the solution rather than a part of the problem. And there's no need to reinvent the wheel, at least in my ward. All of the neighborhood associations in my ward have been around for decades 
you know, the leadership has changed. You know, they get a new president every couple of years because, you know, you, you kind of burn out on that. There's no salary or anything like that. Um, but the tradition continues. So I've used my platform as an alderman uh, to strongly encourage people to get involved in their neighborhood associations. And I do that, by the way, even when they actively oppose me on some issues, we're not always on the same page. You know, I've, I've supported development proposals that neighborhood associations were against. Uh, you move on to the next fight after that. You're, you're, you know, you're going to have to just agree to disagree once in a while um, and then move on to the next issue. So I'm supportive of the concept um, and I actually remain um, an active member of SOAR, even though I no longer live in Streeterville. I've moved to the west part of my ward, um, but I've still stayed in touch uh, with what I consider, you know, my old friends from, you know, back in the 90s. Prior to being elected in 2015, you served as chief of staff to the finance committee chairman at the county board, John Daly. Uh, what was it like working for John Daly? He's widely known as the nice Daly. <laughs> yeah, and I think he uh, he maintains that reputation uh, to date, even though he's now the only Daly still in elective office. So you could uh, you could call him the Daly of longevity that he's had a pretty remarkable career. Uh, well, you're forgetting in, about indicted alderman uh, Patrick Daly Thompson. Uh, well, OK, D Daly Thompson. Right. I, I should uh, mention that uh, Patrick Daly. Uh, we certainly wish him uh, the best going through the situation that is going through. But um, yeah, John Daly uh, is, is really kind of a model of consistency in so many ways. Um, is, he's remarkable in the, not only the length of his career, um, but the way he approaches government. He's, he's a professional. He's, he's actually quiet and he's quietly effective. He shows up for every meeting on time. He's never late. He never misses a meeting. And he's always completely prepared for the policy issues that's before him. He doesn't get a lot of credit for that because he does it uh, in such a self-effacing, quiet manner. But I've tried to emulate that part of, of his approach to government. Um, you know, we're in this because we want to make a difference. We're in this field because we have policy ideas that we think are better than competing ideas. Uh, so when you approach it from that standpoint, you've got to do your homework, you've got to be prepared, and you have to be ready to make a case for whatever issue it is uh, that you're, uh, you know, you're supporting or you're opposing. Um, it's not good enough to just, uh, you know, cast your vote. Um, you've got to explain your vote and you've got to try to bring people around to your side. Uh, and there's a variety of different ways to do that. And John Daly has always done it, uh, you know, with a grace and a kindness um, as opposed to the sort of confrontational and uh, sometimes divisive tactics that are, are in favor today. Um, he's never succumbed to that. And uh, that's something else that I've also uh, respected uh, about him and, and tried to emulate in my career. How did you come to connect with him? Did you grow up in Bridgeport? Uh, well, not, not Bridgeport, McKinley Park, uh, which w was part of the 11th Ward uh, for years. It's actually now been mapped into the 12th Ward. Um, but at the time I was there as a child, it was in the, in the 11th Ward and uh, different members of my family were active in 11th Ward politics over the years. Um, and I went to college in Springfield while John Daly was a member of the Illinois Senate. Uh, and I got to know him uh, during that time. And uh, when I graduated and came back to Chicago, uh, he hired me on uh, right when he got uh, the committee chairman of the finance committee. Is the Daly family dynasty dead 
now. You know, for years, we thought there would be another generation that would reclaim the mayor's office at some point. But here we have the first daily elected official, Patrick Daly Thompson, now indicted in a connection with the fraud involving the Washington Federal Bank in Bridgeport. Is the Daly family dynasty going to die now once John Daly leaves office at some point or retires? Yeah, you know, it remains to be seen. Uh, the future generations, you know, some there's some uh, family members that are working in public service in different capacities. I'm not sure what ambition may or may not be there. Um, but, you know, Bill Daly uh, came much closer to being the next mayor of Chicago than people really realize. If you look at the election results, um, you know, change a few things and uh, he likely would have won. So there was definitely support for another Mayor Daley uh, just a few years ago. How much has that changed? Hard to say. Uh, the electorate is so volatile and, uh, you know, lessons from just a few years ago in history are, are probably much less relevant today, um, you know, than they were in another era. So, you know, I, I don't know. I, I think anyone who wants to run uh, would have to make a case for their own individuality. You know, I, I'm not related to the Taylors, but based on the fact that I did work for John Daly for all those years when I ran, I had to address that too. You know, it was such an easy accusation for my opponents to say, oh, you're, you're a Daly puppet. You know, they could throw that accusation at me all day long. And I had an effective counter argument. I'm my own person. You know, I have my own record. And I stand on my record and what I believe in and what I've done in government, what I plan to do. So anyone who may be part of that family uh, who wants to run for office in the future would have to take that page from the book and do exactly that. Stand up as their own individual, not allow themselves to be caricatured just based on their last name or their family lineage and sort of really draw their own identity and let the voters make up their mind. And they'd have to decry the parking meter deal that uh, Richard M. put through. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, people like to talk about the parking meters, Migsfield and all that. You know, the man was mayor for, you know, 22 years. 22 years. I mean, he made so many great decisions and he made some bad ones. I mean, you look at any any profession, any job, if you're at the top of your game and, and at the top of the career ladder for two plus decades, you're going to have some pretty bad decisions that you stumbled over. We're only human, but you're also going to have some really good decisions that you made or you probably wouldn't have lasted that long. So, you know, when the when the final analysis is written about Richard M. Daly's mayorality, certainly the parking meters will be in there and so will Migs and maybe some other things. And so um, will some I, a lot of corruption too, yeah, hired yeah, truck, but, city hiring, all that stuff. Yeah, but I would hope in, in fairness and in balance, you know, the, the positive accomplishments that that he did during his time, you know, steering the ship of Chicago uh, should definitely be a part of that conversation as well. And I'm sure it would be. Last month, you joined Ariel Ruboiris and using a parliamentary maneuver to temporarily block the effort to rename Outer Lakeshore Drive in honor of John Baptiste Point du Sable, the city's first non-indigenous set settler. This has been a two-year-long crusade by community leaders and African-American aldermen. Why are you so dead set against it? What's behind your opposition? 
Yeah, my I've been opposed to it since the minute I heard it. So my opposition wasn't uh, last minute. It just it really wasn't being heard. You know, I wasn't invited to the table as uh, even though I'm an alderman who represents part of Lakeshore Drive. Uh, they decided to go forward without me, without the voices I represent. So um, that's not the right thing to do. But it's also not the right thing to do because you mentioned my time in SOAR. Um, back in 1999, I was uh, on the executive board of SOAR, and I was also the neighborhood's representative to the Park Advisory Council that chose to name DuSable Park. We picked that name back in 1999. But there is no uh, DuSable Park. It hasn't been finished. Well, it's there. I mean, it's got its designation as DuSable Park, even though the park itself hasn't been constructed. And we could have another whole program about all the reasons for that delay. But back in 1999, I was part of a community effort to honor Jean-Baptiste Dusable by naming that park in our neighborhood after him. And I can also tell you that the people who were involved back then, the Dusable advocates who were involved in that back then, uh, they're not part of this current effort. They've been bypassed. Um, this is a whole nother group with a whole different agenda that stepped forward. Uh, and it's not right. And the reason that I chose to defer it at the last minute and stop the vote was because I wasn't getting an adequate answer about the buildings on Lakeshore Drive that have Lakeshore Drive addresses that would not be covered by the inner drive exception. And we were not really getting an answer from either CDOT uh, or from the advocates for this proposal. They were just sort of dismissing those buildings. And there's actually seven of them. Uh, they're not on the inner drive. So they'll lose their name. Now, they're being told they can keep their address. Even though the, the road's name is going to change, they don't have to change their address. That seems like a ridiculous argument to me. And it's, it's condescending, uh, and it doesn't recognize the legitimate complaint of the people who live in, say, Lake Point Tower, who have had that address, 505 North Lakeshore Drive, for years. Uh, they don't want to change it, and I don't blame them. And they're perfectly uh, within their right to object to this since this was not something that they were ever consulted on. So what are you afraid will happen for these seven buildings? Well, the confusion created by having a building that has an address that doesn't match the street that it's on, you know, GPS systems, giving directions to people, getting deliveries. Some people have said, oh, it's all, it's all about prestige. You know, it's a prestigious address. Well, okay. I'm sure that's part of it for people that they're attached to it. You know, Lakeshore Drive just, uh, you know, it, it has a ring to it. It's, there's a song about it we've all heard. You know, there's a traditional element there that some people are very attached to. And uh, when we did that survey and it showed, you know, pretty much across the board opposition, there isn't a majority of voters who support this under any demographic or any category. I, in hindsight now, I wish we would have put a question in there that would have said, would you support renaming Lakeshore Drive for, say, Daniel Burnham or some other you know, random name? I truly believe had we asked that question, the opposition to that would have been identical across the board. It isn't about DuSable when people are saying they're opposed to the name change. It's about their fondness for the name. They don't want to change it for anybody or anything. So there's alternatives out there. As I said, you know, over 20 years ago, I was involved in an effort to bring due recognition to Jean-Baptiste Dusable and his contribution to founding Chicago and, and the history behind it. Uh, and I continue to believe that's the right thing to do. And there's other options that may be available where we could recognize this historic figure, 
and his role in establishing, you know, a trading post and, and that led to the founding of a city. Uh, there's there's no shortage of great ideas and how we could do that aside from renaming Lakeshore Drive. What do you expect to happen at Wednesday's council meeting? The other side, Sophia King and David Moore, they say they have the 26 votes they needed to pass it. Should the mayor, if it does pass, should she veto it? And would the 34 votes be, be there to override? I, I am certain there isn't sufficient votes to override a veto if it comes down to that. I'm not so positive that they have the 26. I know they think they do. Uh, if they do, it's not by, by very much. It's a very narrow margin. And since we released the data from our poll, I told a couple other aldermen are reconsidering their position because they looked at the numbers and they know this is not something that their constituents support. They don't have a majority of their residents asking them to do it. So they may reconsider, um, you know, roll calls can sometimes uh, be unpredictable. So I think it is likely uh, that we will have a roll call vote. Um, but this battle is not over. And uh, the outcome of that roll call vote, I think, is less certain than the sponsors would like you to believe. How many people are reconsidering because of the poll, do you think? Well, just uh, in conversations I've had, enough to uh, to get them under 26, if that were to be the case. Um, you and think they're also, under 26 now? I'm not sure. I, you know, I, I haven't done the traditional uh, nose counting in terms of, you know, putting a roll call together and confirming it. There's a lot of uh, a lot of assumptions that people are making about where somebody is or isn't on this issue. So um, I don't believe even the mayor's office has gone through that trouble of making 26 phone calls and getting 26 answers. Uh, sometimes it's not that easy. And sometimes when we as aldermen get that call, we don't want to commit in that conversation. We'll say maybe, or we're thinking about it, or I'll let you know. You know, So if you want to go away from that conversation thinking, well, they're going to be with me, you're really taking a chance uh, because things change, conditions change. And up until the last minute, uh, there can be uncertainty about a particular alderman and, and how they're going to cast their vote. And as I said, the poll that we released uh, definitely had an impact on some of my colleagues who were a little bit surprised. They called me to confirm that we use scientific methodology, that this is a legitimate reflection of prevailing opinion. And once they were satisfied this was a legitimate poll as opposed to a push poll, uh, they started to reconsider. So we'll see what happens. It'll be How many of those waivers have you heard from? Uh, I, I don't want to give you a number, but uh, let's just say it's uh, more than four. Okay. And if it passes, would you urge the mayor to veto? Uh, you know, I haven't had that conversation with the mayor yet. Um, you know, she's she hasn't ruled it out. Uh, it's veto is a pretty heavy-handed tactic, so. Um, she's going to have to make that decision. I'm not sure what direction she's going to go. Again, I think it would depend on some of the alternative ideas out there. If we have an attractive alternative suggestion that garners enough support and she vetoes this in favor of something better, um, I think that may be uh, a, an attractive uh, tactic for her to employ. But again, well, I haven't talked to her about it. She's already offered $40 million to complete the park and do this uh, riverfront exhibit and rename the whole riverfront for DuSable and statues and monuments, et cetera. So 
if that's not good enough, I don't know what is. Maybe she can offer uh, putting a binding referendum on the ballot and putting it to the voters. Is that a solution? Uh, well, that could potentially be a solution. I don't know that we want to, you know, we're not California. I don't know that we want to get into government by referendum. You know, it opens the, opens the door to a, a whole thing that I don't think really benefits us. Um, but 40 million is a substantial sum of money. And there's so much more you could do um, that I think would bring the DuSable supporters together uh, and wouldn't be divisive. As I mentioned, the original group of DuSable supporters uh, who are experts on his history. You know, they can tell you um, so much about what he did, what he did with his Potawatomi wife, Kitiwaha. You know, there's there's a whole narrative there that can be expressed. Uh, and there's a possibility for something that would really bring attention and honor to them. You know, statues, murals, fountains, things like that. Um, that's the traditional way that we honor historical figures from our past. Um, and $40 million could really do something spectacular. Uh, so if there's that type of money that the mayor wants to put on the table, um, I think that could be something that would really make a compelling argument um, beyond just trying to rename the river or the river walk, which you know, really was not an idea that generated any support or any enthusiasm. Um, I'm glad she put it out there, just shows that she's open to suggestions. Um, but that wasn't one that was uh, widely embraced. So we have to look at some other alternative ideas. And I know there's some discussions going on right now in that regard. It's hard to believe it was over a year ago now that Chicago was hit with the first of two devastating rounds of looting that clearly caught the mayor and her police department with their pants down. They were not prepared for it. The inspector general's scathing report said so. Police were literally hung out to dry by the brass. You were very critical of the mayor, and rightfully so. Where are we on the recovery from those horrible events among the businesses and residents in your ward? Well, yeah, I, I think we've recovered uh, substantially. We've made good progress. It hasn't happened again since August, um, but there's still an unease. There's still a sense that, you know, what if it does happen again, right? People are are uh, a little bit uh, frightened at that suggestion because in both occasions, back in, in May and in August of 2020, um, once it started, there seemed to be just a snowball effect. You know, it, it really started to gain momentum of its own volition and uh, people just piled on, you know. So how do we stop that from happening again is a key question. And, you know, it, it really exposed uh, vulnerabilities in the system and it showed how law enforcement can be overwhelmed by numbers. You know, it really it's a question of are the police substantially outnumbered by people intent on committing crimes and mayhem and looting when that happens there isn't a whole lot we can do to stop it right so that really was a frightening thing for people to witness and we remain vulnerable to that you know although i will say we've uh we've adjusted we've adjusted substantially in terms of the the tactical planning and training uh the police have really responded to the, that vulnerability. And it did expose the fact that we didn't really have good plans in place to deal with something like that once it started. Um, we have those plans now, right? So that's good. Uh, they haven't been fully tested in real world conditions. And that's good too, in a way, because I, <laughs> I would prefer they never get tested, you know, but if another scenario like May and August of last year starts to unfold, 
we have a prescription and, and we'll be following a tactical plan and trying to implement it under real world conditions. We'll see then how effective it may be. Uh, and I, again, I, I hope it doesn't happen. Um, but we live in such a, a volatile time right now. It's, you know, it's certainly not just Chicago. We're seeing continued unrest in, uh, in Minneapolis, St. Paul, Seattle, Portland, San Francisco, um, even Austin lately. You know, this is this is a national uh, phenomenon that's happening. And I'm not a sociologist, but, you know, I've seen a lot of theories behind it. Um, you know, it's the the uh, anger that permeates so much of society, uh, the inequity that exists in society and, and the symbolism that we're, um, we're force fed on a daily basis. You know, you can't get away from it every time you turn around. Um, we are such a divided country and that manifests itself in all sorts of ways, including street violence. So Michigan we're seeing Avenue that happen. still has a huge number of vacancies. And what about Water Tower Place and the vacancy created by Macy's decision to close that store? Where are we on finding a replacement for it? What would you like to see? Yeah, well, again, to your question about have we recovered, you know, and I would I'm arguing that we are recovering. You know, it's it's in process. It's uh, tenuous. And I would say it may be a bit fragile, uh, subject to setbacks if you know, if we experience another round of looting, but uh, barring that, um, I'm seeing signs of life uh, in some of the vacancies. We're seeing some deals that are being negotiated. Um, the owner of Water Tower Place is certainly not panicking. Um, they believe that there's sufficient interest from potential tenants that they're going to start signing lease deals. Um, you know, we, we've heard some rumors about who those are. I don't who? have any confirmation. Well, no, the, the one that was out there, as you know, we've talked about uh, that was Target. Was and I don't I don't see that happening. That's that seems to be a baseless rumor at this point. Um, but who? that isn't just that isn't to say there aren't other retailers that are uh, kind of kicking the tires and, and looking to move in. Um, we'll see. You know, we'll we'll see who that turns out to be. Um, I will have a community process for for Streeterville. I've done it twice now. Uh, Who's for kicking the tires, Brian? Uh, I don't, I can't tell. Well, for one thing, I don't know uh, what I've, what I've done is I've asked the owners of water tower place to not bother me with every rumor about somebody who might be interested when you get somebody at the negotiating table and they've sat down and they're willing to discuss terms of a lease. That's when I want to know that's when we'll make it real. Um, I can't have a community review for every phone call that they get from a potential commercial broker who might be interested. So nothing is advanced to the stage where they're actively talking about pricing and build outs and things like that. When that happens, um, I'll have an announcement. We'll have a community review process. So um, all I can tell you is that the owners of Water Tower seem quite confident that we're going to get there. You know, uh, they may not be there today. Uh, the call may come next week, you know, who knows, but um, they're, they're actively marketing the property for potential tenants and there seems to be interest. I guess that's about all I can say. Violence continues to plague Chicago. This week alone, we saw two mass shootings. The other day, I believe there were eight homicides over a 24 hour period. The mayor calls it called it devastating. She again called for federal gun control, but she also insisted Chicago is safe. Is it? What about the perception well, of safety? Yeah, well, it's it's it doesn't feel safe. You know, I mean, you can take the crime statistics and make them say whatever you want them to say. There's so many different ways to do it. You could you could make a statement like Chicago's safe and then get some numbers 
uh, that'll be factual in nature and back you up. And you could say, look, you know, crime is down compared to this time two years ago. Right. But people don't feel safe. That's more important because there's a, a connection to the reality that we're living. If you're hearing stories about your neighbor who got carjacked, if you're seeing things or if you're on some of those uh, citizen apps that are out there that tell you every little crime that happens within you know five square miles of your home and you're watching this for yourself and you're sensing a shift in what's going on out there, you're not going to be reassured by statements like what the mayor just made or by statistics that show it's not as bad as you think it is. It's, it's your feeling of security in your home uh, that is paramount. And I have never in, in my career, not just as alderman, but going back to my time leading a neighborhood association in Streeterville, I've never seen anything like this. And I've never seen such a collective fear that people are are experiencing and talking about among themselves. They're, they're doing it in meetings and on you know Facebook pages and things like that. So it, you're, you're not going to win any arguments with them telling them, oh, don't worry. You know, it's all fine. It's all in your head. Well, <laughs> no, it's not. There's something else going on out there. And people really want answers uh, and, and they want to know what we're going to do as the elected leaders of this city um, to put a stem on, on the violence that's happening. And for years, it seemed to be in other neighborhoods besides the one I represented, you know, and, and that's unfortunate that we we as people, you know, on, on the north side where crime was lower, um, fell into the trap of thinking, well, that's, you know, that's somewhere else, right? I'm not going to worry too much about it because it wasn't on my block. Well, you know what? We're all in this together. We live in the same city. We're a free society where people can travel. They don't have to stay on the block that they live. They can go anywhere they want. And that includes criminals and people that have been committing crimes that have been largely confined to some areas of the city um, are now everywhere in the city and it's all of our problem and we can't ignore it anymore and shame on us for the times that we did ignore it. We need solutions. We're going to live or perish what as is a society the together. Quickly. Well, what do I we did, need well, to do more of? Yeah, well, there's two categories of solutions, short term and long term. You know, the long term solutions are the harder ones that involve societal change and, and they involve changing what the conversation now? of equity. What about the now? And, and the short term solutions involve law enforcement. They involve taking criminals who are a threat to society, who have proven that they're not willing uh, to set down the guns and not be violent, and they need to be brought to justice, they need to be prosecuted, and they need to be incarcerated. Uh, and we can't be afraid of saying that. That that must happen now. You can't fix the larger-term problems of social injustice and inequity when society is breaking down and the social order is collapsing. You've got to maintain some level of stability. You've got to maintain some level of compliance with the laws that are passed for a very good reason. You can't look the other way while those laws are being just flagrantly broken uh, and, and to say, well, the system, our justice system, you know, it's flawed. It's not perfect. So let's just throw it away and maybe we'll get a new one. That's insanity. Um, and some of my elected colleagues seem to have fallen into that trap. Uh, and I disagree with that. And I think it's leading um, to a, a spike in some of the crime that we're seeing because there is a perception that there's no consequences anymore. There's no penalties um, at best, you get a slap on the wrist. So, you know, why not go on a carjacking spree? You know, why, why not uh, go on a retail theft spree? It doesn't really matter. And that's happening right now. Uh, and, and we really have to get a handle on that and stop that. 
as we have the larger conversation about fixing the social inequity and the injustice uh, that, that leads to such a divided society that we have today. Before we let you go, are you considering a run for mayor? Can Lori Lightfoot be defeated? Uh, any any candidate can be defeated, especially today, you know, when there's so much volatility and so much anger in the electorate um, and she's in a tough spot. You know, she's she's made good decisions. She's made bad decisions. You know, we talked about a mayor who uh, lasted a lot more than one term a little, a little while ago. Uh, and he, he made, as we said, good and bad decisions. And so has she. So um, we'll see how that plays out. Uh, at this point, I'm intending to run for re-election as an alderman somewhere on the north side. We, you know, we talked about the map and who knows what that's going to look like. Um, but, yeah, I'm not ruling anything out because we we simply don't know. It's two years from now and uh, anything can happen in two years. Does she have the temperament to be mayor of Chicago effectively? We've seen some examples uh, that show otherwise. Yeah, you know, I'm not sure how prepared she was for this job. You know, she came in without any elected experience. And this this profession of electoral politics, it has a skill set. You you know, you, you need to develop it uh, and, and you need to learn it. And she just jumped right in uh, and, and didn't have that. And I think we're seeing evidence of that. I can only say for for the city's sake, um, I hope she's adjusting. I, I hope she's learning um, that there's certain things that simply are ineffective when you're an elected leader, uh, it, that it doesn't work. I mean, you have to be strong. There's no question about that. And she is strong. You, you can't run a city like Chicago unless you are a very strong personality. So she's got that, but it's how it manifests itself. It's how do you use that strength? Uh, and, and that sometimes requires a different approach than we've seen from her. Um, and she needs to make some adjustments in her style. And I, as how? I said, I, how? I can, I, she, <laughs> well, she needs to bring more people to the table and be willing to have conversations with those that she disagrees with in a way that doesn't uh, feel like it's uh, hostile and um, where you, you're just trying to beat people up all the time and, and bring them to heal with the sheer force of your personality. That, that doesn't work. It didn't work for Bruce Rauner during four years that he tried to be the governor Illinois. Uh, and it's not going to work for Mayor Lightfoot if she continues that. She, she needs to recognize that it's, a, it's about addition, not subtraction. And you don't add people to your side by uh, treating them disrespectfully and yelling at them and, you know, uh, uh, you know, trying to, to threaten them or, or uh, you know, uh, bully them. That, that doesn't work in politics. It's, it's not the right approach. Um, and I, I would hope uh, in mid-year, um, middle of her term, she's going to make some adjustments and her, her second half of her term will be a little more effective if she does. Alderman Brian Hopkins, thanks so much for joining us. We'll see how it goes next week on Lecture Drive and going forward. And we will see you all next week. Thank you, friend. Thank you.